The following podcast was recorded in 2022 and is now being released for the public. Thought leadership, titles, current events, legislation, and technology may have changed and evolved since it was originally recorded. Just in terms of national security, you know, we have put a lot of resources, a lot of U.S. national resources into either stabilizing fragile states or preventing them from becoming fragile or you know, reconstructing them. And so we should really be worried about entering a, you know, a time in which more states go onto the fragile state list and there's an impediment in them coming off because the, the way that the U.S. operates best internationally is when there are periods of peace and commerce. The opinions and views expressed in the following podcast do not represent the views of NIU or any other U.S. government entity. They are solely the opinions and views of the speakers. Any mention of organizations, publications, or products not owned or operated by the U.S. government is not a statement of support and does not constitute U.S. government endorsement. Welcome back to the Intelligence Jumpstart Podcast. On this episode, I had the opportunity to talk about climate security with Dr. Rod Schoonover. Dr. Schoonover is the founder and CEO of the Ecological Futures Group. He's a non-resident senior associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and an adjunct professor at Georgetown University. In 2022, he became a resident fellow in the Rockefeller Foundation's Bellagio Center. He served a decade in the U.S. intelligence community as the Director of Environment and National Resources at the National Intelligence Council in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and a senior scientist and senior analyst in the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research. Prior to joining the government for the Advancement of Science Diplomacy Fellow, he was a tenured professor in the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo and a visiting research professor in the Department of Microbiology at the Scripps Research Institute. Dr. Schoonover earned his PhD in theoretical chemical physics at the University of Michigan where he studied complex systems. Dr. Rod Schoonover, thank you so much for coming on the Intelligence Jumpstart podcast today. No, it's great to be here. So to start us off, by education, you are a physicist, and a lot of people don't think of a physicist as a climate expert. So can you tell us a little bit about your career path, not necessarily your resume, but your background and how you kind of dove into the climate security issue for both the NIC and INR? Right. And so my physics education is complex systems physics. I was always interested in real world complex systems. Climate change, which was, you know, when I was an undergraduate, was not a field that anyone went into. Uh, It only was assembled by scientists afterwards. And I got really interested in ecological systems as well. And I was actually a, a college professor in cushy San Luis Obispo, California. And I applied for a fellowship for the American Association for the Advancement of Science, a diplomacy fellowship, where I thought I would be spending one year in government and go back and take that policy experience back to my students. And I stayed a second year. I stayed 10 years. <laughs> so <laughs> They kind of suck you in, don't they? <laughs> right. And so, you know, I, I've been reading climate science papers for 30 years. You know, when I went around and interviewed 
uh, with a bunch of different offices. I thought I might go into the climate office or one of the science diplomacy offices. But a number of people told me, you know, we could maybe use you up there in, the, in INR. It took a while for me to really match the national security piece to the science piece, right? Scientists right. coming in. I have a real difficult time understanding the national security piece. And so I think over time, I was able to really hopefully integrate those in a way that was not just layered, take the science and layer, sprinkle the national security or vice versa. I would read primary climate science in ecological science literature, followed by, you know, the greatest database on earth. Yeah. So climate security. And also I'll just say increasingly questions that were coming from policymakers in the White House and the seventh floor of the State Department were increasingly of a scientific flavor. So I got sucked in really quickly when I first joined government. My first year was very, very intense. Yeah, I bet it was a big learning curve. Yeah. Yeah. So climate change, climate science, and global warming, these are all terms we hear a lot about. But right. can you give us a quick, give us a basic primer? What is what is the science? Right. Right? What what is climate change? I think it's it's important that right off the bat we don't think of climate change as an environmental issue or not solely an environmental issue. And the, the reasoning goes like this. Earth, like many other planets, maybe even most other planets, has a natural greenhouse effect in which outgoing thermal radiation from the Earth is partially trapped on its way out to space by the mm -hmm. atmosphere. And life would not have been possible on Earth without this effect. And we see it on other planets. That's a natural effect. Over the past 150 years or so, human activities have amplified this effect by right. increasing the concentration of, of greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide and methane. And, you know, more than 100 years ago, scientists who understood the greenhouse effect predicted that temperatures on Earth would begin to creep up, and which is what we have observed. What's yeah. important is that temperature is not an environmental issue any more than gravity is. Any process that is temperature dependent, whether it's chemical or biological or physical or agricultural or industrial, psychological, has the potential to be affected by this increase. And we should expect that all of these effects aren't going to cancel out. And so this is one of the reasons why I try not to frame climate change as an environmental issue, but really as an earth systems change or a global change. And right. so human and societal systems are part of this effect as well. And by the way, the, the same argument can be made for the oceans with pH changes as well, but pH isn't quite as fundamental as temperature is to the planet. So we're changing one of the control variables of the planet, and that's will lead to some concerning phenomena. And these concerning phenomena does that involve national security? Yes. Why is climate change a national security issue? So when you start looking at how things are affected by temperature, you, know, you start looking at things like extreme events, extreme weather events, extreme ecological events, decreased surface water, groundwater supply. I'm just going to start listing off a lot of things that are happening to some degree simultaneously. So effects on water, effects on food, crop yields fiber, energy systems, tourism, insurance, labor, displacement of people, health, pandemic, resource-dependent livelihoods being affected, loss of territory, loss of infrastructure, 
change in frequency and intensity of agricultural pests. So a lot of these things I just listed off have implications for both human security and national security. So in terms of things like inputs into political instability or social discohesion or impacts on you know, resource conflict or acrid geopolitics or, and, and just in terms of national security, you know, we have put a lot of resources, a lot of U.S. national resources into either stabilizing fragile states or preventing them from becoming fragile or, you know, reconstructing them. And so we should really be worried about entering a, you know, a time in which more states go onto the fragile state list and there's an impediment in them coming off because the the way that the US operates best internationally is when there are periods of peace and commerce mm-hmm. and in rule of law i didn't mention the adverse effects on militaries that's a one that a lot of people go to first that is definitely an issue of concern not just U.S. military in terms of bases and facilities and readiness and operations, but our allies as well, or even strategic partners. You know, it's not mm-hmm. hard to imagine that the U.S. military and our strategic partners would be called on to do more types of things and more different types of regions than we're accustomed to. So in regard to food security, mm-hmm. I read this weekend that a third of the food that hits our tables is affected because of climate issues. I believe I saw that all, well, most crops are affected, but there are eight that are endangered. Mm-hmm. You know, the maize, or corn, wheat, rice, bananas, coffee, soy, potatoes, and cocoa. But then the pollinators are disappearing as well. You know, bees and bats and butterflies, they're disappearing. So right. these crops are not being, you know, pollinated and animals can't be fed. This is pretty significant. But when you talk about geopolitical tensions, food security exasperates conflict. Mm-hmm. Regimes, you know, have historically used or intentionally withheld food to maintain control. So right. can you see this becoming a more socioeconomic issue here in the United States? Not to mention, you know, foreign states where we will have to partner with governments to make sure that we're taking care of our people. I'm not sure what I'm trying to ask you or if that makes sense. <laughs> right. I mean. It, it makes total sense to me because I think about food security a lot. I, I think this is one of the more underappreciated components of national security. You know, the war, the, the invasion in Ukraine, I think, is reminding us of how teleconnected our vulnerabilities are. If you look at our own vulnerability in the United States, just in terms of calories or in terms of goods and services, we're going to only capture part of the vulnerability, right? The right. propagating effects through the rest of the world that may tip some countries into famine, into poor choices in terms of their own food policy that can have ricochet effects. You mentioned pollinators. You know, there is a conventional wisdom out there that because pollinators like bees don't pollinate grains, like wheat and uh, in maize and the like, that pollinator health and the effects of climate on them is a second tier issue. The amount that some nations depend on pollinated crops would tip some of them into economic collapse, including potentially depending on what food item we're looking at. 
our neighbors to the south. And you don't have to really paint too much of a dire picture in terms of Central America and what might happen there in terms of it being automatically a, a national security issue in our backyard. So, but this is one issue that's of, of many that's happening at the same time. There, there was a paper that came out a couple of years ago, had about 35 authors. It came out in a scientific journal called Nature Climate Change. And it was titled something like Broad Risk to Humanity from Greenhouse Gas Concentration wow. Increases. And in it, they go through and enumerate, they don't elaborate it, it would just be overwhelming. They enumerate over 500 pathways oh by which gosh. humans, societies are impacted by climate change. One of those we've been talking about, but you know, a lot of it comes through food, some comes through energy, water, it's just a whole lot of different pathways, which you know can be overwhelming. But I also think one of the issues of climate change has been more than a policy failure and a government failure internationally, although I hesitate to say this on a historic day when we're White House is going to sign really significant climate legislation. But historically, it has been a policy shortfall, but it's also been a communications shortfall. And growing up in Kansas, my relatives there would probably be forgiven for thinking that climate change doesn't affect them. Because for decades, it was communicated as an issue of tropical storms and sea level rise, right? right. But we need to scope the problem correctly to get to the right solutions. And so you know, the bill that's being signed today does a lot of both mitigation of climate change and, and helping adaptation. But we have a, a long ways to go on that second part in terms of mitigation and, and vulnerability reduction. It's kind of incredible to think how interconnected our systems are. Yeah. And, you know, Biden, obviously, he declared climate change as a national security issue. And he asked for the NIA on climate change. Can you can you speak a little bit about that? Give us sure. your thoughts. Well, so I thought that was a really good thing to do from the very beginning. Uh, I think that happened mm -hmm. certainly on the first week. I don't know if it happened on the first day or two, but telegraphing to the security community that this White House means business on climate change specifically, I think was a very important signal. I'll say that while I was in government working at the NIC, especially in the tail end of the Obama administration, I was worked crazy by the climate security people. I, I could not get on top of that. And so it seemed to me very clear that when the Biden folks came in, that the IC could be overwhelmed very quickly on right. what they were going to be asking for. And so, you know, the, the National Intelligence Estimate, right, this was the, the first document that went through the National Intelligence Board since the 2008 National Intelligence Assessment on Climate Change, which remains classified and confidential. It sat in my office in INR. I had about 20 copies in my, in my safe, read it probably once a year. I thought it was an outstanding document, especially for its time. So, you know, it's always hard to critique a document when you haven't seen the terms of reference. And I wasn't privy to that. The NIE, you know, was asked for in 120 days or something like that, which I thought was crazy. Yeah. You know, wow. and had I still been in government, that I would have, that would have, I would have <laughs> crash landed into that thing, I think. But that said, I think for what it attempts to do, I think it characteristically does a great job. The the language and the and the analysis is outstanding. My gripe with it is, and it, it's it's a rather big one, is that if you read this NIE, you might take away the message that A, 
this is primarily a geopolitical issue and that right. it's what we're warning about is a lot of countries squabbling over Paris, you know, agreement commitments and greenhouse gas emission reduction policy rather than the threat of climate change itself. If an right. institution cannot conceptualize climate change as a thing that will cause fatalities and and destruction and GDP losses and food insecurity, then it has fallen short. And the second piece of this, I think, and this is my own gut, and, and maybe it's something that I learned the hard way over, over a decade in the intelligence community. If you have an analysis on something that is as encompassing as global climate change, and the answer that you turn to is that this is going to be a problem mostly for the developing world after we've seen Katrina in, in New Orleans and, you know, in, in New York City and right. other places, you know, British Columbia, the American Southwest, et cetera. If that's the answer that you come to, you're probably not getting the questions or the methodology right. Right, right. And so I, I always am apprehensive when analyses point as only the poor and vulnerable being affected, they certainly will be. No one comes out of this unspared. I'm Manoli Perniotakis, and I use Vice President for Research and Infrastructure. And this is this episode's Manoli Minute. In the next episode, you'll hear from Dr. Jennifer Shuba from Rhodes College on the intersection of demographics and intelligence. Demographics is another one of those topics that tends to fall into the category of non-traditional issues facing national security professionals. Of course, it seems obvious that understanding any country's population dynamics and direction matters to a range of considerations. It's economic productivity, income levels, health system pressures, conscription levels, and all sorts of other areas that have an impact on how the country behaves in the international arena or handles its own domestic affairs. On the eve of the pandemic in October 2019, the Woodrow Wilson Center here in Washington announced the passing of a giant in the use of demographics to understand national security when it posted on its website that Murray Fishbach had died. Fishbach was a notable scholar of Soviet and then Russian demographics. He spent more than 30 years at the U.S. Census Bureau and from the 1950s into the 1980s led studies of Soviet demographics to include poring over its notoriously unreliable statistics to understand what was actually happening in the country. He later did the same at Georgetown and then the Kennan Institute at the Wilson Center. Even today, his work stands up and is worth understanding, especially in light of the situation in Russia today. During the Soviet era, he discovered a strikingly high infant mortality rate and later worked on understanding ecological impacts of Soviet industrial and agricultural practices on the Russian people and then on other parts of the former Soviet Union. He later also addressed what was happening in Russia related to HIV and AIDS. I had the opportunity to spend some time with Dr. Fishbach on a couple occasions to talk about Russia and then other former Soviet Union country demographic trends. Something I recall him saying that has stayed with me over the years was the idea that one of the keys to understanding the Soviet Union and then Russia was to always consider the Russian-non-Russian split in the population and what that meant for relations between Moscow and the rest of the country. Thanks again for listening to Intelligence Jumpstart. For more information on NIU, please visit our website, www.ni-u.edu.
Hmm, that's interesting. You know, it's funny you're from Kansas because I'm from Colorado. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest issues in Colorado is water. You yeah. know, the Colorado River, it, it feeds like seven states and, you yeah. know, in 1922. Oh, it's not a treaty, but what is it called? Compact, I yes, think. Yes, a compact. Colorado, the state, is in the upper basin. Then there are the states in the lower basin. And right. the compact said that basically the upper basin states will keep the water above a certain level. With global warming and, you know, droughts, we see that level creeping down. And the impact has been significant. Absolutely. Every year, there are crazy significant wildfires. And this isn't just a Colorado problem, but a Rocky Mountain, Western, Southwestern regional problem. So I see your point. This is not just a developing nation issue. We can clearly see it in our own backyards. Absolutely. There's an argument to be made that the societies that are more dependent on some types of infrastructure, whether it's hard infrastructure like dams and, and roads or electricity or internet, telecommunications, these societies, you know, including the United States, are highly dependent on these things. And so when we see blackouts happen for whatever reason, put aside climate as a reason, when we see abrupt changes in services like blackouts or, you know, food shortages, like gas prices going up, people freak out and and it becomes a political issue immediately. Yes. Right. Right. And so the idea that we are somehow less vulnerable is, as my daughter would say, it's bananas. So another report that you were involved in working on is the report, the Six Sigma IPCC assessment, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So it, it's important. So over time, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is the scientific body under the uh, United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, it's the one that really from the beginning assess the basic science, how we know the climate is changing and and where we think it will go. That's working group one. Over time, there has been an augmentation on the work of the IPCC. And so working group two, which is the one that's most important for the security world, I think. It's not just what's happening, what are the trends and, and how do we know it, but what are the impacts on human systems and ecosystems? And this particular volume, this report, and by the way, there's a working group three that talks about uh, how can we mitigate and, and adapt to climate change. But working group two really lays it out. What does this mean? And over time, this has become a bigger and bigger report with hundreds of people contributing. And so one of the things that's important, and, and I kind of argued uh, at the very beginning, is Really, what are the impacts? What are the pathways of impact on food and water and people and labor, cities? And what does the science tell us in 2021 and 22? And so in that report, I I was on a panel that was hosted by the Center for Climate and Security with two of the authors on that working group two report and really wanted to talk about the security dimensions of that. And there's a whole lot in that report. And Mm -hmm. I think it's like 3,000 pages long or something (laughs) like that. When I used to work in government, I would be a government reviewer for that. And so, but there's a a chapter that if you really want to drill down, it would be chapter 16. And that's called Key Risks Across Sectors and Regions. And that kind of not only summarizes previous chapters, but also really starts to put things into a risk framework. 
I think this is something that is not natural for the scientific community. They just want to report the facts and not argue and articulate in terms of risks to people, risks mm. to to systems. But but there's another piece in there that I think is not talked about very much, and it's sometimes hard to discuss, but it, it really talks about limits to adaptation. Right. And so from a security viewpoint, this is important because there's been, I think, a conventional wisdom that humanity will be able to either engineer or adapt or reduce our vulnerability to these problems given enough time. This particular chapter is arguing that there are some hard and soft limits to adaptation. And that means that we should expect adverse outcomes in a variety of sectors. And this chapter tries to talk about those. It's, you know, it's, it's a sobering read, but yeah. the audience is, you know, your audience is the intelligence community. It, you know, yes. it's, <laughs> and, and those interested in the IC. You know, this is, this is to me, the, one of the important parts of scoping the problem correctly. Again, otherwise you don't right. get the proper solution, proper policy response. Yes. Yeah, true, true. And for the record, that chapter alone was 146 pages. That's right. I started reading it, but then I was late. <laughs> well, and they're not writing it so that someone <laughs> reads it all the way through. They're reading it so people can drop in to the places that are important to them. Good point. You know, I honestly, I haven't even read all of this. And uh, I used to, but, you know, it's we, we should forgive ourselves for not reading every part of a 4,000-page document. <laughs> so shifting gears a little bit, sure. you testified before the House Permanent Select Committee back in 2019. Yeah. And at the time, the White House refused to approve your testimony. Mm -hmm. And to this day, it's still not part of the permanent congressional record. Right. So that's kind of huge. And you ended up mm -hmm. leaving the government. Mm -hmm. I resigned. <laughs> yeah. Can you talk about this experience? Yeah. Also, the implications of politicizing such a huge issue that is backed by scientific evidence. It's funny to go back and think about, you know, 2019 wasn't that long ago. It feels like a long time ago sometimes. I think one of the important parts of that is, first of all, that at the, at the point, so I had gone from the National Intelligence Council, I was back in INR. It was clear that I had to, I, I was going to be part of this committee. I believe I was asked for by name by the, by the House. When I drafted this written statement for the record, as we always do, and of course I had to make it unclassified, but as, uh, as we do, we have to coordinate it. So right. I was coordinating the National Intelligence Council's statement for the record, and there was um, some pushback on that, but I was coordinating my own through INR. And so by the time we sent it, we were ready to send it to the House, it was no longer my testimony. It was the testimony of the Bureau of Intelligence and Research, which I think is a significant statement. So this is one of the 17 agencies of the intelligence community whose written statement was suppressed. And so, you know, this was not the first adverse interaction that I had had. It had been going on on a number of topics. So basically, it was a testimony on the national security implications of climate change. Where do you go to draw your evidence? You go to the science. And so I started with the science. I didn't go into primary science articles out of nature. 
I went to the IPCC, which the government of the United States had approved, which was comprised of our own federal science agencies. I had representatives from the federal science agencies look at it, and they signed off on it. What was unusual was the insistence of the White House that they clear it. That was something that, and there's kind of a mixed opinion on this, that certainly the Bureau of Intelligence and Research had never had that happen. And so the insistence that the, that the White House would clear on our analysis to our oversight committee in the House uh, really rubbed some people the wrong way. Right. You know, there's a lot of other you know, complexions to this, but the testimony was suppressed. I was able to give a four-minute oral statement. And, you know, it was a pretty terrifying experience because normally they ask you at the beginning whether there has been any tampering with your testimony. And my heart was out of my ribcage because I thought I was going to have to say, you know, and not a lot of people were watching this, but there are some reporters there. I was very, very nervous about becoming a news story because I really didn't want to. It's not my personality. And so I was worried that I was going to have to say yes. And I had already told my fellow panelists that I was going to have to tell the truth. But that question never came. But the suppression was still there, and then it became public, which was in and of itself an awful experience. But going back to your question, you know, denying scientific evidence, regardless of, of the reason, is not something that we would tolerate in other dimensions of security, right? We would not allow, you know, that kind of thing to happen if the topic were chemical and biological weapons or pandemic risk or Actually, let me pull pull back on that one, but cyber risk. And so, you know, it's it's even bigger than, than the scientific piece. It's really, do you want a national security community, including the intelligence community, that is reality-based? Or do you want one that is ideologically based? And I just can't imagine that anyone would want the IC. You know, our value proposition has always been the truth part. I think even more so, it's less about, you know, the secrets and the clandestine part. It's like, who's the honest broker? Who can the White House, who can the, you know, the senior policymakers turn to without getting some kind of spin? And historically, that's been the intelligence community. So, you know, when I resigned, it was an excruciating decision. But at the end of the day, I was like, how is anyone, especially once it became a news story, how is anyone going to know whether what I'm saying has been crafted? And because I'm a scientist and also was in the security community, I, it was like a double whammy of suppression of science and suppression of the intelligence community. It just was, you know, it, it was uh, mind boggling that this was happening. And so it was excruciating. And then as soon as I resigned, I knew it's the right thing to do because I thought it was important that people realize the danger that the intelligence community was in. And it wasn't the only part of the IC that was handled, right? And, I, and I'm trying to say that as nonpartisanly as I can. I, I think when I talk about science, I don't think there's a real partisan angle to it. Yeah, it sounds like it would be a tough decision for you and your family. Mm-hmm. Politics by nature are various shades of gray. When I when I think about science, though, this is me, Jane Doe's opinion. It's very black and white. Right. I mean, there is evidence in, and then you right. have non-evidence, right? Right. Well, and, you know, we've been talking about the IPCC reports. You know, there are 
thousands of people who are working on this, right? I mean, the chances of, and this is the sixth, the chances that they are all incorrect becomes really, 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 really improbable. So anyway, that's right. that's my own statistical physics head applying it to logic. No, it makes sense to me. Despite it being supported by thousands of scientists, we, we have these detractors or climate skeptics. And yeah. there's a lot of different disinformation. And yes, after the, another House Oversight Committee hearing, Congressman Mike Quigley cited a tweet of yours. You said yes. that if climate change poses a risk to national security... As the Pentagon and the IOC again remind us last week, shouldn't we view climate disinformation through this lens as well? Can you talk a little bit about that view? You know, and uh, I think it's important to put that in our brain and try to remove the partisanship that has accompanied it. And what mm -hmm. I often do is move climate. It goes to that first question. If climate change is a, is a risk to national security, many of us think it is. I would say most people who understand climate change agree with this just because of the enormous and wide pathways on which security hinges on stability. But if you take that, then any effort to minimize either understanding or action to address that risk, we would see it as a, as a security risk if we were talking about Chinese destroyers going into you know, Gulf of Mexico. There were actors who were saying otherwise, right? We would see them through the national security lens. Right. If we had a, a chemical or biological incident in the United States, and there were people who were trying to argue that either infectious diseases don't exist or that, you know, uh, this was whatever, you know, it just... As soon as you take it out of the, the already politicized and ideological world, it starts to make sense. Right. And so, you know, I think it's important that we capture the risk appropriately and we don't oversell it. But mm -hmm. these disinformation operations have an origin. Some disinformation is, is emergent and comes up organically. Climate disinformation has an actor behind it. It is an operation. It is a, in many ways, an industry. So people sure. like me who've studied climate for a long time realize that we have passed a discontinuity in the Earth system. And those Earth systems and the social institutions that are linked to them are also finding a landing spot if there's such a thing. But, you know, the transition is inevitable to me. And the, the real question is whether we go through a fast transition or slow transition. So a yeah. fast transition gives us more choices. It's more equitable, safer, it's less expensive. When I say fast, I, I am talking not just in the energy system, I'm talking really in our socioeconomic responses to climate. The thing is that humans are really good at reacting when their own safety is on the line. That's We're true. already past that in some parts of the world, but that's becoming clearer and clearer. Versus slow. A slow transition is painful, unjust, and probably leads to really terrible outcomes for a lot of people. And so the climate disinformation and other kinds of disinformation on this issue pulls us away from fast action and moves us towards slow action. And I think that's the the way it should be really thought about. You know, it's really how much harm are we going to take on as we move further into the 21st century. 
Wow, well, that gives you a lot to think about. <laughs> so thank you so much for your time today. I just have one more question. Please. What are you doing now, now that you're not in the government? How can people reach out to you for your thought leadership? Thank you. Yes. Since I left government, I founded something called the Ecological Futures Group, which is really my attempt to articulate and, and help others think about how climate and ecological change affects security writ large. And the, after I left government, I realized that I hadn't done nearly enough thinking on how instability in the biosphere affects security and people worldwide. And so I've been doing a lot of writing on things like pollinator, seed dispersal decline, and I'm working on a project on soil degradation, and I have another one, a project on the overlap between climate change and antimicrobial resistance, which I think is important. Cool. And so I speak to communities, speak to the, to the U.S. government a lot. And so, yeah, that's at the Ecological Futures Group online. I'm also on the board of advisors to the Center for Climate and Security, and who I've known for 12 years now. So, And I'm also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University, where I teach climate science in the, the School of Foreign Service. That's great. It sounds like you are extremely busy, which is good, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I've had so many hats lately, so... Well, thank you again for coming on the Intelligence Jumpstart. I enjoyed our conversation and you've given me a lot to think about. Good. Me too. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Intelligence Jumpstart podcast. We'd love to hear from you about what you like and what you'd like to hear more of. If you would like to learn more about a specific topic or issue, send us a note at nipress at niu.odni.gov. To learn more about NIU, visit our website at ni-u.edu.